Thank you. Yeah, Revelation 12, eh? Buckle up. You know, over a decade ago now, um, out at Parra Bay Camp, when I was still leading out there, and, you know, with a, yeah, crew that we had at the time, during that season, we, um, yeah, we had one of our younger leaders, I still remember vividly, out at the campground, and um, he used to enliven conversations. If ever there was a lull in one of our leader sort of circles and people were just chatting, um, he liked to spice things up. He would ask the question um, just into one of those moments, and he'd say, the question would be, so, you know, whoever was closest, so Roland, or so Claire, what do you think Revelation chapter 12 means? And um, you see, then everyone would pause and think for a moment to go, hmm. And you know, obviously the text would be opened and we'd read the chapter and we'd get into it. And um, we would find that uh, there'd be lots of interesting conversation that would always come out. I remember this happened at least three or four times over the course of just one camp. And um, I, indeed the conversation was interesting and we went all sorts of places, but the great thing is there was a consensus that we always arrived at. The young leaders and people chatting, these teenagers, they'd get to a point where there'd be a good consensus. And that consensus was, we have no idea. And um, <clears throat> to be fair to them, and this is where I think this is exciting with this passage when we start to understand it better, but to be fair to them, I think one of the reasons that they really struggled to ascribe meaning to this section of text in Revelation chapter 12 is that they had been given, probably by the popular church in the West and um, just from other influences that they'd had in their communities, they had been given one presupposition, one default understanding about Revelation that they took as like a premise when they approached the text. And that was very simply that they had a futurist approach, that they assumed that all of the book of Revelation, start to finish, was a book that was to do with future events, things that have not yet come to pass, things that are perhaps on the verge of happening, but have not yet happened. And the book of Revelation, an ancient text written to the early Christians, was actually to give us clues and little hints about things that were about to transpire but hadn't happened yet. And so I can understand for them that then this could be a difficult text to understand when they read it through this lens. There are all sorts of fanciful and interesting ideas about what this passage might mean, but hard to nail down. I'm not saying that the book of Revelation doesn't speak to our future and the hope that we have, but what I am saying is that at times having that sole approach can be an unhelpful stance to have in and of itself towards the text. So look, um, Revelation 12a, this is not an easy passage to unpack in just one sermon, um, by the way. When I was given this passage, and as Lorne and I were talking in previous weeks, we've all been commenting that um, the challenges of presenting a sermon um, inside those time constraints and offering some meaning and still unpacking things well with people and uh, reflecting together on what it means for us as a community, but a whole chapter. And the difficulty of navigating that well. So that has its challenges. Uh, we're not going to be able to dive into all the richness and all the um, different Old Testament images and symbolism that we see here and all the depth that some of us might love 
and hey, there's still chance for a coffee afterwards and um, other catch-ups as well. We can deep dive as best we can this morning and we can do the rest at other times. But my hope this morning really is to be able to give some basic understanding to the text and then with you together from that, I want to ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to us today in this particular place, at this particular time, through this particular passage? And I think that's the encouragement we can draw from that as we start to have some understanding around the overall text of this chapter. I think there's some real rich encouragements there that we can take together. So look, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to have it open or grab one from the pews. Um, we are going to be moving around different passages of the Bible a little bit as we start to unpack some of this stuff. Um, you know, the visions in Revelation, they serve to give us, I think it's best to understand, they give us a window a snapshot, a little picture into this cosmic drama that's being played out. Um, you know, it gives us an understanding, if you will, to what's happening really behind the scenes of our everyday physical life here in the physical realm. There are spiritual realities that are at play, and Revelation gives us a bit of a window, a peek into what's going on behind the scenes. And you know, the dramatic visions that we see here in chapter 12 and the rest of Revelation, as many have said in the weeks before me, they um, helped the early Christians place meaning to their experiences. The things that they were living, they were able to have some hope and some meaning and some encouragement through these visions that John receives and records for his readers. It was a great encouragement to them and it helped them. You know, John's vision shows us several images that would have helped the early Christians understand the different things that were playing out in the ancient world around them. And it gives them this understanding, and it means something to them. And that's really significant, that the text um, means something to those people. So, you know, look, as we dive into this together, let's just look at this first little section uh, in chapter 12. We'll go, uh, say, verse, yeah, the first few verses. Um, so I'm reading, yeah, from verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. And a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another great sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God, into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, and the place was prepared for her by God. And we see this as the first section that we're looking at. You know, just hearing that, this can seem like a terrifying and perhaps a confusing vision for John to be having. A woman clothed in the sun, but pregnant and in labor. She's on the verge of giving birth. Meanwhile, we've got this terrifying seven-headed dragon that's crouched, poised to be ready to devour and destroy and consume this child the moment that it's born. You know, the casual reader of Revelation and someone not familiar with some of these things might, um, you know, have a pretty confusing time and might just ask the question, what is going on in the Bible here? 
And I want to say, you know, thankfully, um, we're lucky with this text, you know, thankfully that um, this passage gives us some pretty clear cues as to what these different signs and different visions mean and what's going on here. And, you know, to John's readers, who this letter is written to, as they were receiving this vision recorded by John, their knowledge of both the Old Testament imagery and their knowledge of popular folk tales from the ancient world at the time, that makes it pretty clear what's going on here. And they would have indeed been able to, it means something to them, they were able to take understanding from it. They're able to work out who the woman is. You know, Bible scholar Paul Spilsbury, he writes that the apocalyptic images in chapter 12 would have made sense to the early Christians that their letter was clearly directed to. I think that's helpful, why I'm stressing that, is it's helpful to have that in mind because this original audience could have made sense with their understanding of the Bible and the world that they lived in and were saturated in these Old Testament texts. So we see here um, with this Old Testament imagery, there's this woman. Who is this? What does it mean? Well, we see that she has a crown on her head of 12 stars. And those familiar with the Old Testament would think, aha, this is the people of God. This is Israel. This is the true people of God as they were meant to be. And first and foremost, that's the image that we would have coming to our mind. Um, we see that this is, woman is a symbol for the people whom God has chosen to work out his salvation plan. And so this number 12 is significant in the Old Testament, and we would have that connection. And we see that um, while we have this idea of this complete whole people of God as they are meant to be, and God working his plan through them, we see that she's pregnant is the next thing that we see. And that gives us another clue. This woman is pregnant, and she gives birth to a child. And again, there's a hint in the text. We see that she's giving birth to Jesus, to the Messiah, because we see that this child is someone who will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And we have you know, this idea of a priestly kingdom from which a child is born and God is birthing his good news into the world um, through these people. And so that leads us to think, okay, that's one symbol and one image, but as we're picturing that, there's, you know, it's not just a one off and one and done with this. As we think about the woman, the, the symbol, this vision that's had, there's more at play here because Mary also comes to mind. And we're not saying necessarily that this, single, this, this woman is singly encapsulated in Mary, the person, and that John has seen Mary in this moment, but we can't help think of the virgin daughter of the 12 tribes of Israel, who literally God uses to birth the good news of Jesus into the world. While this passage isn't simply a vision of Mary, um, we can't help but read this passage without picturing Mary and her part in the rescue plan coming to mind. And so we have there's that sense as well of her as the mother of Christ. But the thing I want to stress to you and uh, think about some more in the bigger picture, and this is something, again, drawing on the Old Testament, is that there's another image here. There's another woman, if you will, that is symbolized in this text. So if you have your Bibles with you, I actually want you to jump right back to Genesis and jump to Genesis chapter 3 because you'll see that there's this third woman, Eve, that's represented here. 
And if you, I'm looking at chapter 3 in Genesis, and I'm looking at verse 15. And you'll see that there is some key words here and imagery that from Revelation 12 that has been drawn on um, from Genesis. It draws on these same passages from Genesis. We see that the dragon and the woman in Revelation 12 are at war with each other. They're at odds at enmity. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike at his heel. He says, uh, God says to the snake. And we see here this image that we have war between the woman and the serpent. And this is what we're seeing here, that the dragon is at war with and conflict with the woman. And we see that the offspring, this is, and this is powerful, right back here from Genesis, we have this link, that the offspring of the woman is the one the serpent seeks to strike at. Straight from Genesis. But Genesis also tells us that the serpent's head will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. And so then let's look at the dragon. Now we have some good key understandings here as well because thankfully the text gives us a real clear, not even a hint here, explicitly states for us in verse 9 we see that the serpent is named as, um, the dragon is named as that ancient serpent, again bringing us back to Genesis. So we see that, um, uh, you know, the reader of Revelation can see clearly who the dragon is. That um, is directly naming this terrifying dragon as um, the enemy of God, as the devil, as Satan. We see named here in verse 9. And, um, you know, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. And we can see, indeed, looking back to Genesis chapter 3, the deceiver of the whole world and of all humankind, causing them to fall into sin. So it's through this image of a woman that we see God's rescue plan coming about. That's the image that God gives to John. And we see here in Revelation that that is the hope that we have as this story coming into being. And that brings us to this hope exactly, um, the child. What is this redemption plan? Who is this child? Well, as we've said already, and we can see clearly, this is Jesus, our Messiah. If we look at verse 5, we see... And he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Now, there's an interesting thing here. This is a quote and a reference to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, is something that's um, explicitly connected and has been seen to explicitly be a prophecy, a, um, a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. This is a, a Masonic psalm, if you like. It's attributed to being about Jesus and his coming, and how he will set things right and bring justice and rule over the nations. Now, the thing that I like about this is ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. In the Hebrew, that's of the Old Testament text, it says rule. But you'll see many of you in your Bibles in Revelation chapter 12 here, there's a footnote, and it'll say rule or shepherd. And this is significant because in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, the phrase indeed is, and he will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And so in these two words, in this one phrase, we get these different but beautifully complementing images. We have, uh, in one sense, Jesus who will both break the disobedient nations and discipline them with a rod of iron. But also another image comes to mind with the shepherd, 
is he's also God's shepherd of the people, and he will shepherd God's people towards life. And he will, we think of Psalm 23, he will help us rest. And so this is an encouragement for us because we see that for some, yes, there is judgment coming and that the Lord will bring justice and bring things to right. But for God's people, the Christians who are suffering, he will come with and shepherd us with a rod of iron and we will fear no evil, he's with us. And he will shelter us and bring us into that space of peace and rest. And so that's a deep hope we can draw from this. And then we also see here that this child, when it's born, and sort of honing in on Revelation 12 again, so you jump back to this, this child that is born, it just says very simply, this child is snatched away and taken up to heaven. And you know, this one simple statement is meant to encapsulate all of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection and his enthronement in the heavenly realms. We see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is placed by the throne of God and he's taken up to heaven and put there. And although the dragon, Satan, sought to destroy the Messiah, he was thwarted. And indeed, it's Jesus who has actually won the victory. And so uh, Bible scholar uh, Craig Costa, he puts it that the dragon's threat against the woman and her child, it backfires. Instead of destroying his rivals, the monster's crude attempt to devour the child results in the child being enthroned in heaven while the woman escapes to a place of refuge. So let's move along and we'll look at our next section here from chapter 7. Um, and we've got here war in heaven breaks out. Uh, sorry, not chapter 7, verse 7, I should say. We've got war breaking out in verse 7. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then there's this pronouncement from heaven. We see this loud voice booms out. It talks about how salvation has now come, and... Um, and we see the power of God's kingdom coming to hand through the authority of his Messiah. And we see this, um, this pronouncement. Now, this section here, as we're looking at it, this is probably the easiest for us to get our heads around, I think. It's pretty clear what's going on. Uh, because of Christ's victory, what has happened there, and Jesus' victory on his, the cross, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, we see through that victory that the devil is defeated. And there no longer is any place for the devil in heaven. And Michael leads the other angels into battle, casting down the dragon and his angels both. And then we look to our last section as we move through this whole chapter. We see in this last section that really the dragon rages with the time that he has left. Um, and the dragon chases after the woman and also after the other children of the woman. And you know... With the, it seems indeed that with the Messiah safe now and out of reach in heaven, and um, we see it is that the focus of the dragon shifts away from Jesus, and we see that there are other children, these other children of the woman, and these other children are the ones who carry on the family relationship with Jesus, and they're identified here in this text, and they're the ones that the dragon then goes after full steam. And um, 
These other children, we can see here, even in the passage again, if we ask who they are, we see clearly, well, they are the church. That's us. We are the other children of the woman. We're the community of faith and um, uh, this crew of faithful Jews and Gentiles who acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and we see Jesus as the true King of heaven. And so with Jesus having thwarted the devil, now he comes after us. Um, And we see that though while this can feel a bit disheartening, there are some real encouragements here because the devil cannot overcome or destroy us because here in the heart of this chapter at verse 12, we see a great encouragement because we see that we, um, we rejoice because we can overcome. But in verse 12, we see that the devil's time is short and that gives us perspective of what's going on. So there's, this, is this, this whole chapter is a central scene in the book of Revelation, and it gives us uh, a real perspective, a, a spiritual reality that we live in that's laid out plain before us. When we walk through our daily lives, as we go to the shops, as we're at home, as we're with our families, as we're going about our days, as we're at work, whatever we're occupying our time with, this is the reality that we live in day to day. And we see that... There is a devil who, while on earth, will cause us to trip up any way that he can. He'll attack us with the goal of causing us to fall away. But if he can't do that and he can't get us to abandon our faith, he will do as much harm to the beloved children of God as he can. You know, and I'll be honest, um, in preparing for this sermon, it was a real struggle over the last um, sort of month or so. Um, you know, the last couple of months for us, we've seen COVID come through our house um, about, oh, I'll say five weeks ago now. And um, yeah, my little girl Hazel in hospital for a little bit of a, a few days with that over a weekend and us quarantined in there and then at home. And we've also, but in addition to that, we've seen a multitude of illnesses during what was kind of like my key sort of settled preparation time for this message. We've been bombarded with various things, other hardships as well, aside from illness. And some of our key friends that we've been supporting have been really hit with some hard stuff, all seemingly back to back. Now, I want to say that, um, you know, you know, and at the moment, for example, even now this week, my wife, Rebecca, is resting at home in bed. She um, has had reduced hours at work and had post-COVID shortness of breath symptoms that, um, you know, she has really limited her capacity to work. She's done reduced hours at best. And it's been a real challenge and struggle for, um, for her, you know, talking to her boss and then she'll just be puffed. So there's some day-to-day things that we've been really wrestling with as I've been trying to prepare this. I just want to say that, look, I'm not in the school of thinking that says every single physical thing that happens that doesn't go my way is directly the devil. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I am saying, and, you know, what I do think about is I bet that the devil does not like the stuff being talked about. I reckon that the enemy is not stoked when we proclaim that he is defeated and that his time is short. And he will try and trip us up if he can. And we have this perspective here in this chapter that we do have an enemy. Um, You know, we have him focusing his war efforts on us as the church. So we must remain strong. Revelation tells us that we must hold on to our witness of who Jesus is. So this is the chapter. We haven't been able to dive into all the different richness and everything that's there, and there's so much more we could talk about, but I want to just give you these three sort of encouragements to take home. As I've reflected on what is the Lord saying to us as a people 
in this church. Well, there's three things. And I think the first really clearly is the dragon, is that there is an enemy, as we've been saying. And we have to keep that perspective before us. You know, um, this vision makes it clear in our minds as Christians that we're not just civilians who are living in peacetime um, with lots of pleasure and just to have life enjoyed. But actually, as Christians, this passage serves to remind us that we need need to remain focused on the realities that are taking place around us in the world. And we need to be clear that we're at war. Um, but we learn a lot about our enemy in this passage as well. This is one of the key passages that tells us quite a bit about the devil. There's plenty of passages, you know, where you don't have to talk about the devil. This is one of those passages where we're directly seeing our enemy talked about. And we learn some great things. We learn um, about him that he's an angel. The enemy is an angel. Clearly stated, a mere created being next to God the creator. So that gives us a real clear sense of, you know, um, how the scales are balanced there and who's going to come out on top. Um, we learn that he is the accuser in the heavenly court. Um, we learn that he has, though, been cast down from heaven. And we learn that he's the defeated one in this passage. We see that um, he's the one who is at large on the earth, but there is no longer any place for him in heaven. And he has no longer any role. He cannot stand and accuse us before our God. There is no sense. Through what Jesus has done now, he has been thrown out of heaven. But we see he's the one who makes war on us, and we see he's the same ancient serpent that has been from the beginning uh, tempting humanity and challenging us since the Garden of Eden. But most importantly, we see again that he is the one whose time is short. And he knows it, and we should know it. And I want to encourage you then that Paul summarizes this, I think, in other parts of the Bible really well. This is the perspective that we have, a defeated enemy that is out there. The war has been won, but we're still seeing these final parts playing out. And Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, in that letter he says in chapter 6, verse 12, and many of us know it well, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so we learn, though, that it is the angels of God who are the victors, and they're more powerful, more powerful than the dragon and his forces. And as we learn that, that helps us, because if we look to our second point then, we can have a perspective of eternity and the hope that we have. The second point I want to give you to really just take home and reflect on is that uh, hones in from this proclamation here in verse 12 of chapter 12. Um, oh, sorry, verse 11. It gives us this hope that uh, the, those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, they did not cling to their life even in the face of death. And so instead of clinging on to our lives, Rather, Revelation here gives us the message that we're to walk the way of the cross. You know, at times there's this false theology that comes into our churches. I've seen it many times in different places and um, different moments and conversations and things. We have this idea that it kind of says Jesus came and he suffered on the cross so that we don't have to. Jesus took our hardships and because he went to the cross in our place... Our lives now should be easy and blessed and just full of peace. And suffering isn't something that we should have to navigate as Christians now, if we're doing it right. And 
I want to say, look, it is true that Jesus carried our sin to the cross so that we do not have to carry sin and we can be restored to relationship with God. But the message of Revelation says something different in terms of suffering itself. When it comes to suffering, trials, and hardships, the letter of Revelation is pretty clear. We will overcome, amen, but we follow the Lamb who was slain, and this is the one that we follow. We're in a cosmic battle, a battle that has been won, but we're called to participate still in this battle and in uh, joining with Christ and bringing God's kingdom now to the whole world, seeing it expand and taking the remaining ground. We announce this kingdom and we demonstrate it. We, again, are not civilians living in peacetime. The kingdom is declared by our words and our actions. And we don't conform to the way that our culture lives, but rather we walk the way of the Lamb. And um, N.T. Wright, he points out like this, he makes a simple point that, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that the dragon is out to get us. That being a Christian comes with many hardships. You have a part in this cosmic war, this great epic drama. You are the children of the woman made possible by the male-born child depicted in this passage. By Jesus, we are added into God's family. This is the hard part of the message of Revelation. By declaring allegiance to God to join in this cosmic war, we attract the special attention of the enemy. But, you know, the clear message of Revelation is that by this road and by joining in with God and by walking the way of the cross, we are victorious. We should take great encouragement that our Lord Jesus is the victor. We know who wins the war. However, victory comes through what seems to be defeat is the point that I'm making here. Um, Jesus, for a moment, he seemed to be defeated when he entered into death. But he entered into death so that he might overcome it. And we are also called to follow this path. Uh, we're called to walk the way of the cross. So theologians call this cruciform living. And in simple terms, what that means for us is that to many looking outside at the church and looking at you as a Christian, we may seem foolish not to prioritize worldly comfort. But the book of Revelation calls us to shape our lives around what's actually this cosmic truth, what's truly important. And Jesus is the thing that's important. Honoring God and living in this just and righteous way, that's what is important. Regardless of the cost in the here and the now, because we have that hope that we overcome and are raised from the dead. So the ways that we live and what we do and focus our time and energy on now, that needs to be centered on a witness to Jesus. That's what we occupy our time with and that's the perspective that we've got. We can't just be casual and enjoying the things of the world alone. We need to keep the perspective and to stay sharp, prepared for uh, battle and advancing God's kingdom through what we do. We have to have that perspective. And I guess what I want to ask is, do you feel that you're doing this? Um, is this you know, something that is worthy of reflecting on this morning? Are we having that focus with us as we go through the week? You know, these people that are being referenced here in this vision, these other children, they did not hold their lives as something to be clung onto in the face of death. They had that eternal perspective, that hope of resurrection and glory, um, and that glory of being with our Good Shepherd. So I just want to leave that with you to think about. So finally, the core thing in this passage, in this proclamation we see again in the centre, and this is an encouragement for me to leave you with, is that we overcome. 
and we see that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. That's the hope for us this morning, and that's what I really want to encourage you with. That is the central message of the book of Revelation, that while all this is going on around us, and this passage gives us perspective, this loud voice declares that we actually share in the victory that the angels win. We, uh, it's attributed to us as well as the other children, as the believers and followers of Jesus. We overcome and join in with the forces of light and celebrating. By the radical example of our Christian love and commitment to God, in the face of even persecution and death, whatever may come our way, we see that God's kingdom expands and the gospel is proclaimed. And many believe because of our faithful witness. And we overcome. In our church here, our local community of faith, we may have endured many hardships, but again, I want to encourage you that the victory is ours. We overcome. So the letter of Revelation pulls back, and if you will, it draws back the curtain, and we see backstage, behind the scenes, what is going on. This is what this passage gives us, that picture. And um, yeah, I want to encourage you simply then in closing that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And if you could take one thing from this passage, perhaps, as a summary statement, really it's saying that, yes, we have an enemy who is present in the world, but he is defeated. And while things may seem like they're hard and he's still raging around, we have the victory we overcome through our Messiah, Jesus. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth. May you keep in our hearts the encouragement this week that we overcome, Lord. Mm. We just praise you, Lord, and we thank you. And we want to keep our eyes set upon Jesus and walk in your way. You, Lord, are the Lamb who was slain. And you, Lord, are the victor, the one who is enthroned in the heavens. And we're part of your family. We're yours and we join with you in all this, Lord. Thank you for chapter 12. Difficult passage, Lord, with a lot there. But Lord, rich is the encouragement that you have given to the early Christians and to us through this passage. Thank you, Lord. Amen.